Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this sermon from God's Word will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. I love singing those words with you, how worthy. The word worthy is a word that we will be accustomed to singing on that day when before uh, the throne of the Lamb, we stand together and worship Him, calling Him worthy, holy, holy, holy forevermore. I look forward uh, to worshiping Him there on that day. Psalm 72, as we dig into the text, we think about the King of Kings, our King Eternal, the righteous, perfect King who will rule forevermore. Desires can be a strong thing, and as I mentioned in the introduction to our singing time, I think many of us have that deep-seated desire for a righteous king. And I would argue that God even placed that there, a longing, a desire for one who can truly implement peace and righteousness and joy forevermore. C.S. Lewis is famous in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, for saying, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Indeed, what Jesus Christ has done on the cross is He has saved us from our sin, given us peace with God, made us His children, brought us into His family, and promised us an inheritance. Part of that salvation is making us citizens of His future kingdom. We indeed have a different home. That's why the New Testament begins to talk about believers in terms of sojourners, pilgrims. We wander through this life proclaiming the King and His coming kingdom, and we look forward to our future home. As we sing many times, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And so we look forward to that time when God and His Son will reign forevermore. Psalm 72 was written by Solomon, and I think it is a prayer longing for the reign of that king. You see, Solomon was very aware of a promise that was given to his dad, King David. Nathan the prophet had come to David with this promise from God. Part of the promise included the reign of Solomon, that he would uh, sit on the throne after David and would be able to build the temple, and so there was this excitement about Solomon. But then the promise went on to say that there would be one from the lineage of David who would reign forevermore over Israel. It says in 1 Samuel 7 verse 16, your house meaning the lineage of David, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. There would be some ruler to come after David who would sit on the Davidic throne over Israel forevermore. Solomon himself was looking for this king. In fact, I think Solomon knew pretty quickly in all his wisdom that it wasn't him. <laughs> And so this, written by Solomon, this prayer, Psalm 72, looks forward to that Davidic king. Now, one of the things you may have noticed as the psalm was being read earlier in our service is that the the verbs used through this psalm can be translated two different ways. 
they can be taken kind of with a sense of a, a future prediction, a, a prophecy, if you will. This is what the New King James does. And so we read phrases like in verse 2, he will judge. There's that future tense, something that will happen. The other way to take the verbs through this psalm is a, a desire, more like a prayer. May he judge. And it's difficult to know which interpretation is right. In fact, many of our English translations uh, take it those two different ways. I think the ESV takes it in that sense of may he judge. And so you may notice that in your Bibles as we work through it today. So which is it? Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter a whole lot. What Solomon is expressing is the same. With great desire, he's looking forward to this king who will rule in these ways. Many of the translations take it in the future tense because what Solomon prays here aligns so exactly with a lot of the prophecies about the messianic king. And it's clear. Now, as we look back, it's a little easier. We see with with clear eyes as God's revelation has unfolded more and more through the years, we see a little more clearly who this psalm is talking about. The Lord Jesus came and proclaimed himself. In fact, I just read this morning in my own Bible reading through the book of Luke, a passage where Jesus is talking to the crowds and he's saying, one greater than Solomon is here among you and you don't listen to him. Who was he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's that greater king. And so as we study the psalm, we do so with excitement and joy, thinking about King Jesus and looking forward to his future reign. So Solomon expresses these desires, this expectation of God to fulfill his promises. And so we're kind of summarizing it this way, that you and I can long for the reign of the perfect King Jesus, to look to the future with confidence and longing for his coming, for that period of time which he will judge the earth, set up his kingdom, and then rule forevermore. Look forward to these things. Why? What do we have to look forward to in our perfect king, Jesus? Well, uh, Solomon kind of describes four different aspects here that we'll work through. It gives us rich reasons to worship and long for the reign of this king, Jesus. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus is the righteous king. He's the righteous king. And in verses 1 through 7, you're going to see how that word righteousness comes up over and over and over again. He he will judge with righteousness. You see that phrasing in verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 7. Okay, so it's coming up a lot here in this first section. He is the righteous king. You notice in verse 1, this verb is unique. It is an imperative. It's a request from God. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. And I think those two words referring to uh, the same person, the, ki- uh, the king, will be in the lineage of a king. Right? And so we know that's true of, David, er, of Jesus. He was referred to many times as the son of David, of David's lineage. Verse 2 Admits that he will judge with righteousness. So that righteousness comes from God, 
As Isaiah 11, 1 and 4 predicts, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow from its roots, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and with righteousness he will judge the poor, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins. That's Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 4. Sounds similar to this, doesn't it? This King, Jesus, will reign with perfect righteousness. He will judge perfectly. He will judge the poor with justice, verse 2. Verse 3 talks about how because of the rule of this king, he will uh, bring uh, righteousness even from the tops of the mountains. So the, the idea is that every area of the kingdom will be affected by this righteousness and peace. And the word peace there is the word shalom. It means wholeness. Everything is well. Beautiful descriptions. Verse 4 kind of repeats it. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. He will break in pieces the oppressor. Jesus will reign in all of these ways with righteousness. As a result, verse 5 talks about how all will fear him. They'll look to him with reverence and respect for the way that he rules. And it will endure Verse 5, as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations, Solomon knew that this was predicted to be an eternal kingdom. There's our first clues. It's not talking about Solomon himself. (laughs) He's dead and gone. But Jesus shall reign even longer than the sun and the moon exist. Verse 6 is a beautiful description of how things will flourish under his perfect authority. Like the rain that comes down on the grass like showers that water the earth and and so the plants grow and produce. In his days, the righteous shall flourish. You see, the leadership of a perfect king, the leadership of a righteous king causes all under his rule to flourish in righteousness as well. What a beautiful description of the reign of our king. There will be an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. And indeed, Jesus will reign beyond the life of the sun and the moon. It's likely that during the millennial kingdom, his thousand-year reign over Israel, that the sun and the moon will endure with some aspects of destruction during the tribulation. But then, uh, between that little period of time, intermediate time, between the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom, God brings into existence the new heaven and the new earth. And we're told in that new kingdom that there's no need for the sun. Why? Because the Lamb will be its light, shining from His throne forevermore. Cool stuff. The King endures even the death of the moon and the sun. (laughs) Nothing can stop His righteous reign. In life, sometimes we look around us and and see, well, it just seems like everywhere you turn, there's some new scandal that comes out about some leader or some ruler. And though we know it shouldn't surprise us because we know that people are sinners, every time it happens, there's that, that shock, that grief that comes with us. In fact, I was reading that... uh, Psychologists are calling this anticipatory anxiety being on the rise, that this fear of what's going to come out next is just on the rise. What are we going to hear 
about so-and-so or about this or about that or the other thing. Anticipatory anxiety. The Canadian Medical Association Journal published an article in 2021 about protecting the brain against bad news. <laughs> From this article, I'm quoting to you a, a doctor named Cecile Aaron. She says this, the, the feeling of fear, sadness, and anger triggered by negative headlines can keep people stuck in a pattern of frequent monitoring, leading to worse mood and more anxious scrolling. Speaking of scrolling on our phones, right? The negative spiral, lately dubbed doom scrolling, can take a toll on mental health. Studies have linked the consumption of bad news to increased distress, anxiety, depression, even when the news in question is relatively mundane. Well, the article goes on to offer uh, optimism as the solution to uh, anticipatory anxiety. I would offer a different solution. Not just general optimism, but hope in one who is a righteous king. Hope in one who will never make any mistakes, never has and never will. Hope in the perfect ruler who is one day coming again. This is where we look. And as we become discouraged with the stuff happening around us, may the Lord help us to lift our eyes to Him to hope in Him and His sure promises, not wispy optimism, but rock-solid hope in the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the righteous King. Think of that. Perfect righteousness. He always does what is right. He always knows what is right. I can't even get that part done much of the time, let alone to do what is right. We look at the messy situations of life and... I don't even know which way's up in this scenario. But the Lord Jesus looks at every scenario and he knows every detail, even the secrets of the heart. He sees it all and he knows what's right and he does what is right. Perfect righteousness. Friends, this encourages us in so many ways. First, it encourages us to pray for those who are in authority today. We know that God is the one with supreme authority, and He's told us in His Word that He's placed some in temporary authority in our governments and civil locations. Why? Actually for this purpose, for the upholding of righteousness and the putting down of evil. So we need to pray for those who are in authority Pray that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that only by His grace would they then be empowered to reflect His righteousness in the way that they implement their authority. Pray that they would have wisdom and guidance and direction to know what is right and to know what is wrong and to put those things forth. But as we pray for them, remember that we do not hope in them. They're earthly rulers. They're passing away. There's only one who endures the sun and the moon, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even as we pray for our present authorities, we hope in Jesus. We long for His return. We pray, come Lord Jesus, like the name of our church, right? Maranatha. We pray that His return would be soon. We delight in His righteousness. And as we see failures around us, we grow in our affection for Him because He's the one who never fails. And so cultivate affection for Jesus and for His righteousness. 
as you encounter partiality in your workplace, delight in Jesus who shows no favoritism. As you encounter injustice in society around you, long for Jesus who always does what is just. As you open the word of God, delight in the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're mistreated, give thanks for Jesus' perfect kingdom where all oppression is put down and he treats us all with righteousness. He is the righteous king. As Solomon continues in this this prayer, this longing for this righteous king, he next begins to talk about how his reign is universal. And so number two today, he is the universal king. He's the universal king. And I mean that word universal in two senses. He reigns over everything that exists, meaning there, there are no boundaries to his kingdom. And so you'll see how Solomon describes that. All the earth, all the universe is included in his rule. And he reigns over every king, every person, everyone with any kind of authority, he's higher. His reign is universal. He's the king of kings. You notice in verse 8, here we're talking about the bounds of his kingdom. It extends from sea to sea. And that's not meant to be like limits. It's meant to say every bit of land is included in his kingdom. It's boundless. He talks in verse 9 how he rules over all people. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. That phrase, lick the dust, I really like that. That's a, a, a fun Hebrew word picture. These are often used, in, especially in Hebrew poetry. And you can imagine what it means. It means they're bowing so low that they get dust in their mouths. They're actually licking the dust. They bow so low before the king of kings. I love that. His enemies lick the dust. Verse 10, talk about kings of foreign countries coming to him with gifts and presents. And uh, Tarshish, we think, might be in Spain. Uh, Sheba, maybe in Africa, or excuse me, Yemen, and Seba in Africa. But the point is they come and offer gifts to Jesus. Why? Because he's the highest king. He's over them. And again, this is neat because here it's almost as if Solomon is just looking forward to this king who will be even greater than him. Do you remember who visited Solomon during his reign? The queen of Sheba came and and offered gifts to him. But Solomon's like, oh, it's going to be even better. Kings from all over the world are going to come and bring their gifts to this king of kings. He's the universal king. Those from distant lands will travel to fall down before him. Verse 11 expands it beyond just the kings that are mentioned and actually says, All kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Everyone, everyone bows before this king, whether they want to or not. He rules with all authority. It's a universal kingdom. We're told a little bit about this in Revelation 21. There, the eternal kingdom is described, and we're told that the nations of of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. There, even in the eternal kingdom, (laughs) the kings that are saved, that are there in that eternal kingdom, will come and bring their gifts to the king of kings, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns over every king. He is the universal king. We like to mark out what is ours. Mark out our property. Maybe you've had a, a child show you their room and, and point out to you, well, that, that's mine and that's mine and that's mine, you know, the, the things that belong to them. Then we grow up, right, and we become homeowners and it becomes important to us that we have property and we find where the markers, the boundaries of our property is. Well, that's mine and that's mine. It ends right there and there's this sense of of dominion and ownership over that bit of land that we call our own, and I can plant a tree here if I want to, I can cut it down if I want to, right? And we can kind of do what we want with our property. Uh, A friend of mine actually uh, bought a bit of land in the promised land in Israel. You can actually buy, uh, I forget the section, it's like a foot by a foot or six inches by six inches, you know, like this big. Uh, You can buy property in Israel and get a little deed that says, yes, you own this property. And so discussion with him, well, what are you going to do with your property there in Israel? You know, go stand on one foot, I think is what I'll do uh, with my property. But there's this sense of ownership and dominion when it's, when it's your land, right? Now, I love the way this section describes the king of kings because he owns it all. There's, there's no end to his ownership and rule and dominion. It just goes and goes and goes. It's limitless and boundless and eternal. Every king comes to him to bow before him He owns it all. Imagine the questions, you know, in the kingdom. What about that area over there? Is that safe? Is that under your rule? Yes, that's mine. What about that land over there? I mean, that looks a little different. Is that under your rule? Yes, I own that too. And I rule it with righteousness, says the King of Kings. Look forward to that day. Friends, we can long for the universal reign of King Jesus. His dominion will be over everything. I love the statement that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We recognize that the kingdom described in this text in Psalm 72 is not yet here. It's quite obvious as you read and study this text. His righteousness does not prevail from sea to sea over all the lands. Now, there's a sense in which God is always reigning supreme. He's the most powerful being and He's sovereign, right? We get that. But this kingdom with the Davidic king on the throne reigning in this way is not yet here. And so we look forward to this with longing. And the the Lord's prayer is a great prayer to pray, Oh, that your kingdom would come. What does that mean? It's a time when His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everywhere and in all places, righteousness will prevail on the earth. Commentator Alan Ross puts it this way, The prayer of this psalm draws in some of the great prophecies of the reign of the Messiah on earth, which the New Testament confirms will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ when He returns to the earth at His second coming. While he now sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high, as Scripture depicts it, he has not yet put all things under his submission. 
Righteousness does not fill the earth, and the whole earth groans, waiting for the day of redemption, Romans 8. The petitions of this psalm for one will be fulfilled in the coming messianic kingdom. Look forward to that day when His reign will be universal. If you want to read further about that, Romans 8 talks about the groaning of creation for the return of the King when He makes all things new. Not only is His reign universal and we can, we can look forward to that, but also He is the saving King. Number three, He is the saving King. Verses 12 through 14, there's a, there's a change in the verbal forms here. And these do seem to be predictive verbs, meaning He will do this, He will do that. And so even the translations that take most of these as requests, may He often take these verses as that future tense. He will deliver. Notice the terms of salvation in these verses in 12 through 14. You see them there. He will deliver the needy, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He's a deliverer. Verse 13, he will spare. He will save. Verse 14, he will redeem. Right, So he is a, a savior, a deliverer, a helper. This is what he's like. He's the saving king. Verse 12 actually is connected to the previous section by the word for. It begins verse 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries. So why will all kings bow before him and all nations serve him, as verse 11 says? Because... He will deliver the needy when he cries. It's his being a saving king that makes him worthy to be the king of kings. This is the very logic used in Revelation chapter 5. Do you remember that scene? The the, the scene around the throne. They're getting ready for God to open up his judgment on the earth for their sin. But they're asking each other, who is worthy to pour out this kind of judgment on a wicked world? And there's actually sadness for a few moments there in that scene because as they look around, they can't find anyone worthy. Finally, the lamb steps forward. Ah, he is worthy. And John, describing the scene, goes from weeping to rejoicing as the lamb steps forward. Do you remember what they cry to the lamb? Do you remember why he's worthy? Worthy are you. To judge the earth. Why? For you have redeemed us with your blood. He's a worthy king because he's a saving king. He's a redeemer. This is what he came to do in the first coming. Yes, he presented himself as king, but he presented himself as saving king. This was his consistent message. Remember his conversation with Nicodemus? Right, This is going to be a righteous kingdom. And so he spoke to Nicodemus how you must be, what, born again to enter the kingdom of God. You, you have to have perfect righteousness to enter this kingdom. And so he came in his first coming to provide salvation. I'm so thankful our king is a saving king. And so we have described in verses 12 through 14 a a number of the ways that he will show what he's like, his salvation, his deliverance, his redemption. The last phrase of verse 14 is unique and kind of interesting. Precious shall breathe their blood in his sight. We read that and it sounds a bit strange to us. Who would hold blood as precious? Well, blood represents their their life, right? If the blood is pumping, they're, they're living, 
And so the idea is that he values, he considers their lives precious. He wants to protect them from having their blood shed. It's the idea of that phrase. He's a saving king. It's one thing to have power. It's another thing entirely to have compassion, to delight in rescuing people. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. He has both power and compassion. You know, we, we wonder if that combination will be there many times with those who have power in our, in our world. They have power to do something, but will they also have compassion? Maybe you've experienced this in different categories. I have recently with the Polk County Treasurer. So I was uh, involved in the process of selling a vehicle. And this was back when they were still doing all of their transactions by mail. And so kind of how it worked is you had to download the right forms from the Polk County Treasurer's Office website and you know, you're selling this vehicle and so you have to fill out all these forms and you're reading instructions that feel like, you know, well, tax instructions where you kind of read them and you're like, okay, what did I just read? I need to read that paragraph again and make sure I'm understanding this correctly, you know. And so reading these instructions about filling out this form and it must be in this kind of ink and you got to have all these things filled in. And so I remember filling it out and thinking to myself, okay, I think I did a pretty good job with this form. And so I folded it up and put it in the envelope and sent it in the mail off to the Polk County Treasurer's office in hopes that I'd hear something back. And so you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and it was just a fun adventure of like doing things all by mail. It's been a long time since we've experienced that, right? And so you wait a couple weeks, and it's like, okay, I think they probably at least have gotten it by now. I should be getting something in response. Finally, the letter arrives in the mailbox, and I'm thinking, well, okay, that's not the size of a license plate, so... uh, I don't know what's going on here. So I open the letter and unfold it, and it's the same forms I sent in with a couple of highlights of things that I did wrong on the form. Power without compassion. <laughs> well, come on, it's close enough, right? Now I got to wait another two weeks, you know. So I went through the form and checked the highlighted sections and corrected the things that they wanted and filled it out and folded it all up, stuck it in a new envelope, put it in the mail. The two-week count starts again, and so you're waiting, and so you're waiting, and finally a letter comes from the Polk County Treasurer's office, get, yes, this could be it. Nope. More things. Okay, this form is correct, but now we need this form. Well, that would have been nice to know the first time, right? Power without compassion. And so then I had to fill out the other form and send that in. The third time's the charm, maybe. Sure enough, finally this time it arrived with the license plates, and the, the process was complete. Now, I'm not saying they weren't actually compassionate. They probably were just doing what they had to do, right? I I understand that. I get it. Those forms have to be accurate and all of that. But when when it comes to somebody with power and, and big decisions like that, often maybe for our own convenience, we hope that they'll have compassion. Well, I know I'm getting it in late, but but just let it go this time, right? You know, we have a God who delights to rescue us in our mess. He's compassionate. He's compassionate. This is the first coming of the king, right? I mean, think of it. He humbled himself and came as a baby so he could live as a man and live the perfect life, being the spotless lamb of God, dying on the cross, taking our sins upon himself. Think of the kind of king that makes him. 
So he takes our sin upon himself. He dies on the cross. He is buried. He rises from the grave just as he said. He ascends on high and as Philippians 2 so aptly puts it, it's because he became obedient to the death of the cross that God also has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. So he's not only the righteous universal king, but he's a saving king. He's a rescuing king. He's a perfect king. I wonder if you know the saving king today. Have you been saved and made a citizen of his kingdom? Colossians 1 talks about the incredible work of God. That when we have faith in Jesus Christ, he he saves us from the powers of darkness and conveys us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Like Jesus explained to Nicodemus, it's a kingdom of perfect righteousness where from the inside out, we've been changed. We have his spirit and so we're able to live out this righteousness. What was old has become new. This is not a kingdom that anyone can just enter on their own or or earn in their own righteousness because we always fall short. Think of it. it. Even if I never did anything wrong, could I really attain to the righteousness of God? Infinite righteousness? But the good news is that God in His love sent one to be made sin for us. He took my sin upon Himself and that when I have faith in Jesus, we are made the righteousness of God in Him. God. Away into this kingdom by faith in the one who died for you and rose again. Friend, you can have your sins washed away. You can be reconciled to God, peace with God. You can be given His righteousness and entrance to His eternal kingdom. Have you made this saving king your savior? Would you do so today by trusting in Him and what He did for you? If you've been saved by this saving king, are you trusting him today? He's always acting for your good. Even what seems like the absence of an answer is actually the active love and grace of God. Always. It's what he's like. He's a saving, rescuing, merciful, compassionate king. And so are you delighting in him? Are you proclaiming his salvation? This is what the New Testament is. As Jesus was ready to ascend on high, he told his followers that they would then go and be his witnesses, telling the world the identity of the king and that his kingdom is coming. And that we're forgiven of our sins and given access to this kingdom by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder... Are we fulfilling our job as sojourners in this earth, as citizens of that future kingdom, as we look forward to it? Are we doing our job now, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom? I know who the king is, and he's awesome. I got to tell you what he did for me. And you can be a part of his kingdom too. This is our task here on this earth, to proclaim the saving king and his coming kingdom longing for his return. We spend so much time investing in this life. 
We put so much money and thought and resources into temporal things. Things are going to pass away like the sun and the moon. Carrie often likes to remind me of the stuff in our home. It's, it's all going to burn, right? This stuff is passing away. Why do we attach ourselves to it so much? Oh, that more and more and more our lives would be invested in eternal things. Where our true home is. As Jesus taught so often, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Maybe I have that backwards, but you get the idea. What are we building for in this life? Is it this life or the next life? As we come to the final section of the psalm, verses 15 through 20, we're going to see that he's the worthy king. And, and Solomon almost breaks into praise here, just thinking of the different ways that this king will be praised. He's worthy. He's worthy. We know that this is not talking about Solomon because in this section, this future king is worshipped. And really no place in scripture is a human king to be worshipped. And so we know this king must be God. In fact, at the final section of the psalm, you'll see there's similarities between how God is referred to and how this king is referred to. So the implication is that this king must be divine. And so again, thinking through what we know now, looking backwards, it becomes pretty clear to us. Ah, if there's one that has to be a God king, who could that be? Oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Notice how this king is praised. Verse 15, he shall live. The gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer will be made for him or to him continually. And daily he shall be praised, worshipped. Verse 16, as a result of his rule, there's going to be abundance of grain in the earth. The tops of the mountains, there will be even, even there, things will grow. And those in the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. The people will flourish as well. God's reign in Christ will produce abundance. Verse 17, his name shall endure forever. This means this kingdom will last. His name shall continue as long as the sun. Men shall be blessed in him and all nations shall call him blessed. These last two phrases, I think Solomon might even be quoting the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. Do you notice the similarity in terms there? There in Genesis 12, God promises that through the seed of Abraham, he says, in you, through your seed, There will be a blessing and all nations will be blessed. The wording is very similar here. Through this king, all will be blessed and they'll call him blessed. Now, there are two words used in the Old Testament for that idea of being blessed. One is happy, like there's just a sense of joy. Blessed are those who, yada, 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 you've heard those phrases before, happy are those or joyful are those. There's another word that has to do more with worship. It's when we call God blessed. It's a different word. We translate it English the same, but the word is different. It's a, it's a worship word. That's the word here. All nations shall call him blessed. It's a word of praise and worship. It's the same word used in the very next phrase, verse 18. In fact, the words are right after each other. We'll call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the Lord God of Israel. This is a God king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is worshipped, the God of Israel, who will bring this to pass. He does wondrous things. 
Blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with, a, with his glory. The word amen you're familiar with, it comes twice here. Just to confirm it, it means let it be done. May it be so. It's true. Verse 20 becomes a conclusion for what's often called the first book of the Psalms. Thus, the prayers of David are ended. And uh, 72 marks the end of a, of a lengthy section of David's psalms. Uh, this one, of course, by Solomon. Not all of them are by David, but a section of David's psalms. Starting at 73, we enter into Asaph's psalms uh, through about 83. And uh, so there's a section of Asaph. David has psalms later in the psalms as well. But uh, an interesting concluding note right here. But the point of these verses, 15 through 20, is that Jesus is this worthy king. He is to be worshipped. We know. We know he's worthy. We already talked about Revelation chapter 5, 1 through 10, where Jesus is worshipped because he redeemed us by his blood. He's worthy because he is God, and he's worshipped as God here in this section. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who does wondrous things. He's worthy because he humbled himself and God exalted him. We've talked about Philippians 2 already. Because he's the worthy king, even today, friends, we can worship him. We can stir our affections for him daily, bowing our hearts before King Jesus to obey him, to live for him, to love him. I wonder, where do you need to submit to Jesus today? What step is the Lord Jesus Christ calling you to make as your Savior and your King? How will you obey Him today? Learning to obey Jesus in this life is one of the ways we prepare ourselves for eternity. It's one of the ways we invest in eternity. Every choice we make in this life to please Him is a choice rewarded for eternity and aligns us more and more with what life will be like in His righteous kingdom where all we do is what is right. Do you look forward to that time? Are you preparing for it by living for the worthy King even now? Long for the reign of the perfect King, Jesus. I want to close by reminding you what we know about that coming day. Revelation chapters 19 and 21 come at the end of the tribulation. Chapter 19 is the return of Christ as He prepares to set up the millennial kingdom, His reign over Israel, which then, after He puts down Satan, is ushered right into the eternal kingdom forevermore. So listen to just a few words about King Jesus on that day. Revelation 19.11 Now I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it 
He should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our King. Chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You look forward to the reign of the king. He's coming again. Look to the sky for his return. We're He will call us up to be with him forevermore and we'll watch as his timeline unfolds and he imposes his righteousness on the earth. And because he died for us and rose again, friends, if you've trusted in him, you'll get to be there for all of that. Praise God. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.